I'm Richard Sherman, and you're listening to my Audible original, The League. Equal parts history, social commentary, and entertainment. We'll focus on some of football's most unlikely, inspiring, and unbelievable stories. Be sure to check out this title and other great storytelling at audible.com. The NFL Draft has become the league's third biggest attraction right behind the Super Bowl and opening week. It's a nationally televised three-day party with celebrity appearances, the football world's brightest minds, and hope for every fan. It's also become a billion-dollar sub-industry for sports writers, media pundits, and even gambling sites. Given the spectacle and draw of the event, it's hard to believe that the draft was an afterthought for league officials for almost 50 years, until early 1980. And so began the birth of one of the most celebrated events across all sports. This is The League. Audible Originals presents a Joy Road Entertainment production. I'm your host, Richard Sherman. in New York City. Bob Lee is standing by at our broadcast center right now to take a look at what will most likely be the top picks of this 1981 National Football League Collegiate Player Draft. The idea for a draft was conceived in 1935 by Philadelphia Eagles owner Burt Bell, but it wasn't to enhance interest in the league. It was to save it from collapse, recalls his son Upton. There had been something like 50 or 20 teams that had gone out of business since 1920 when the league was founded. And so he said, there's just no way we can make it as a league. They'd gone from like 20-some teams down to nine. And so finally, by 1935, he went to the league meeting in Pittsburgh and he addressed the owners. And he said, we are, as a league, only as strong as our weakest link. And therefore, I propose a draft so we could all be equal. Now, what happened was, and it's been told incorrectly today, if you go and read the different accounts, it says George Hallis was really for it. He was not for it. And think about it. Tim Mara, the Giants. George Hallis, Monsters of the Midway. Curly Lambeau, when Green Bay was really, really big. And later on, George Preston Marshall had moved from Boston to Washington. They didn't particularly like it. But somehow he sold them that we're going to go under. And by one vote, only one vote had passed. He talked them into having the first draft in Philadelphia, 1936, at his father's hotel because nobody could afford anything, in a small room, and had the first draft. None of the press showed up. Nobody gave a damn. And for a long time, nobody would. But in a little-known fact, to drum up fan interest in the draft, the NFL did try something long before the NBA had ever even thought of it, a draft lottery. When beginning in 1947, the first pick of the NFL draft was literally taken out of a hat and called the bonus pick. Once a team won a bonus pick, their name was taken out of the hat. The practice ended when Congress decided it was too close to gambling. 
but not until all 14 NFL teams have been awarded a bonus pick. Beginning in 1960, for the first time in its history, the NFL draft would get very interesting when the league had to adapt their strategy during the NFL-AFL war. Barry Wilner is an award-winning writer and author of the book On the Clock, The Story of the NFL Draft. That's my favorite time of the drafts because great stories came out of it. You had court cases during those wars. You had separate drafts. The NFL actually moved its draft up late in its regular season. The AFL knew the best way to get things done would be to assign rookies, to get these guys out of the draft and develop them. Gil Brandt, who's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, is one of the greatest NFL executives ever, said that it was 24-7 babysitting the shenanigans that went on. Players would be hidden. One specific player wanted to be taken to Hawaii before he would sign with one of the teams, and the team did it. You had a fullback from Oklahoma named Joe Don Looney who signed with two teams on the same day and collected the bonuses from both. It was just crazy. But the NFL-AFL merger would put an end to the shenanigans, and the business of the draft will return to normalcy. Until 1980, when an exec from a small cable network called an old boss with a curious request. Chet Simmons told one of his producers, Bill Fitz, that he wanted to televise the draft. Fitz, who had a lot of experience with NFL coverage, said, why? There's no one there. There's no coaches there. There's no important people there. And there weren't a lot of fans back then because it was during the day. And even Pete Rozelle said to Chet Simmons when he came with the idea of, why do you want to do this? Simmons' answer was direct. He said, it says NFL, therefore I want it. The NFL's first televised draft wasn't exactly lightning in a bottle. It was kind of a mess because they didn't have access to a lot of video. Because they didn't agree on this until February, and the draft was in April, ESPN didn't have a ton of time to put together enough material to really fill out a full broadcast. So Simmons told Fitz, we've got you scheduled to do the entire draft, but if you feel that it's losing momentum, you can stop and we'll go to some other programming. To help cover the draft the following year, the network would tap its anchor from their flagship program, SportsCenter, he was a 25-year-old kid from Westchester, New York, who, before going into cable TV, cut his teeth in radio and still dressed for it. I had uh, pretty long hair and a mustache. I don't know. I look somewhat like Ron Burgundy as I look back at it, maybe. But that was a look in the late 70s, and my kids can't really believe that we look like that, but a lot of us did. And you're going to do the 2.30 show, and would you be interested if it's $16,500? I said, absolutely. His look may have resembled Ron Burgundy, but Chris Berman was also quickly becoming the face of the network. And though he felt like the network was close to exploding into pop culture ethos of Americana, he had no idea the NFL's draft would help take it there. Anyone that says they did would be lying to you. By the way, we had no money, so it was, quote, free, and we put it on in 1980. No one sitting in 1980 or 81 and go, oh, my God, we just, with the Beverly Hillbillies, we found oil in the backyard. But Berman could sense that there was something special happening with the network's draft coverage. I look back at it, it's amazing. People, who's going to watch 8 a.m.? It was a Tuesday in April. I mean, well, 
And then people started calling in sick for work on an odd Tuesday, so no one would suggest a holiday hangover or Friday in the summer. I mean, it's spring. You haven't seen a game since the Super Bowl in January, and you're not really going to worry about your team until July. So it had the makings of something that was catching on. Over the next couple years, as cable television began to expand, so did ESPN. As I like to say, it didn't grow mathematically, it grew geometrically. The way I like to put it is that we at ESPN rode cable's coattails, but at the same time, cable TV rode ours. With all the ingredients of potentially explosive programming, all ESPN needed for the show was a fuse. And the following year, they found it in a young football analyst from Baltimore, Maryland, with a knack for evaluating college football talent and a terrific head of hair. His name was Mel Kuyper Jr. I always evaluated and analyzed football and wanted to either get into coaching or personnel evaluation. So that's something that started at a very young age in terms of the, the love of football. I played all the sports, but it was the love of the evaluation and the evaluation of the players and how that impacted the game. And next year, how did the team get better? That's how the draft kind of came into focus for me. So I started thinking about making this a business when I was probably in high school at Calvert Hall here in Baltimore. To get the information, I had to figure out a way to do that. So we had the big satellite dish put on the roof of my house back on Ramblewood Road in Baltimore, Maryland. And I was able to see everything that a lot of people couldn't. While he didn't invent draft analysis, Kuiper Jr. did perfect it. I always tried to do with the reports that I wrote on the players was provide a real detail about a deep dive. Go back in the history of that player. Let's go back into his high school career. What was he doing in high school? What sports was he playing? What did it, where there were, where were his awards, the accolades he received in high school? And how was he graded going into, the, into college? And then through his college career, take you through each year. Any injuries, anything that happened. You basically track it all. So I want to give people, a, when they, he, that player was drafted, everything about his high High school career, everything about his college career. I want to bring that player to light. Now, it's just interesting. I'm just going to go to our publication, the uh, our Bible all the time, the Mel Kuyper draft report coming out later and later every year, I might add. Thanks, <laughs> Says multi-Emmy award-winning sports journalist and pro football Hall of Famer Andrea Kramer, who joined ESPN to cover the draft in 1989. I have just about every draft report that Mel Kuyper's ever done sitting in my house. So when he burst onto the scene, this was the start of, you may call it a cottage industry back then, but now it's big business. Kuyper was really the innovator. The great thing about Kuyper is he's such an entertainer, but he's an entertainer with tremendous information. When he came on ESPN, he was so opinionated, but never indifferent. And Chris Berman knew how to play off of Mel Kuyper, and that just created a must-watch TV. So when Mel came, he and I became... I don't want to say a pair or a duo, but we worked together every year. And so I was fascinated that here's someone the same who made this his 11 and a half month job. I and mean, you're not doing it to, you're not making money doing this. And he had draft book, but I mean, and we all couldn't wait till it came out because we hear people that no one would ever hear of. I had no experience at all. And so to be thrust into that, from my standpoint of trying to learn on the job, basically, it's just every year became a little bit more of, okay, I get what we're doing here. I remember Chris would say, Boomer would say to me when we're 
He said, don't worry about the cameras. Look at me. Talk to me. Just like we're sitting at a restaurant. Hey, just talk to me. And that's what I did. Mel Kuyper was a gift to everybody, to football fans, to me, to us. Mel's enthusiasm, Mel's knowledge, Mel just being a fan. And it's such an educated and a unique fan that, that attacked this. Nobody said, you know, you can really make a career if you do this. Nobody told him that. He told him that. And he didn't probably do it saying, I can make a career at this. So he was enlightening to me, to all of us on the draft. But Kuyper's popularity would also create a nascent enmity between league executives and the pundits who critiqued their work. There was a lot of naysayers, and a lot of people even in the industry were writing article after article about, why does anybody care about Mel Kuyper? Who cares? I fought this all the way up into the mid to late 90s. Most of it was negative. I didn't want to read any of that stuff because I was very positive about it, very confident about where this thing was heading. But people tried to knock it down every step of the way. So I don't need to see that anymore. I, I don't need to see the good and the bad. Because there was a lot of po- I don't want to see the positive articles. I don't want to see the negative articles. I'm just going to do what I do and let the chips fall where they may. And that's the bottom line. Have a strong belief and strong conviction in what you're doing and fight through all that negativity. And in my case, after I saw it was out there, I decided, okay, I'm not even going to hear about it. Nothing frustrates people more than when you say to them, I didn't see or hear anything you said. You know, I didn't read it, didn't hear it, didn't see it. So it also prevented me from getting attitudes about different people that were writing these things. I didn't know why they were doing it, what their motivation was. So I didn't read it, didn't see it, didn't hear it. And uh, some of the people that actually wrote some of those articles became good friends of mine down the road. The thing that you have to keep in perspective is that Mel Kuyper, this was his season. He's everywhere in draft season. But there's always a feeling amongst the scouts and the GMs and all the people that this really is their living, that this guy has his connections, he is an information broker, and he shows up and he basically has a lot of his opinions formed by what people are telling him and not necessarily what his eyes are seeing. So there's always that battle that exists between the draft pundit and the scouts and the GM. And certainly it came to fruition with, do you pick Trent Dilfer or do you pick Trev Albert? That battle would indeed come to fruition in 1994, culminating in what would be one of the most combative moments in draft history involving Indianapolis Colts general manager Bill Tobin in their selection with the fifth overall pick. The Rams picked not only the fact that it went to Indy is not a surprise, but when the name Dilfer didn't come up and Trev Alberts, a just marvelous linebacker from Nebraska, that, of course, raised eyebrows. The Colts took Trev Alberts, who was kind of a tweener from Nebraska, a very good college player. But most people believed he was not suited to be a linebacker when the pick was made, let's say. Kuyper didn't like it. Give me a break. That's why the Colts are picking second every year in the draft, not battling for the Super Bowl like other clubs in the National Football League. Kuyper's comments did not sit well with Bill Tobin. He sort of went ballistic, a bit of a personal way. I remember sitting there, and, and my good friend Freddie Gadelli was producing the draft that year. And I'm talking to Joe Theismann and Chris Berman. We're all talking on the set about the next couple picks that are coming up. Do we have highlights for this guy? Do we have highlights for that player? And just getting ready, right? And all of a sudden, I get Freddie in my ear saying, Mel, we're coming back to you. Mort's with Bill Tobin, and, and we're coming. I said, what are you coming back to me about, Freddie? He said, oh, just know Bill Tobin's ripping you about what you said. I said, what am I responding to, Freddie? 
Who in the hell is Mel Kuyper? We don't have to take anybody that Mel Kuyper says we have to take. Mel Kuyper has no more credentials than my neighbor, and my neighbor's a postman. It was great because you don't see general managers go holistic like that very often. And there were a lot of people who liked the fact that Tobin spoke out because they didn't consider Kuyper an expert. I just remember being so shocked at how brazen Bill Tobin was, but he took it personally. I do this year round. You show up and you, what do you really know? Remembers Trent Dilfer, who was the center of the pit. Well, always felt bad because what Mel didn't know was that my agent had told Bill that I wouldn't play for the Colts. I didn't know anything. I was a dumb 23-year-old that didn't know any better or trust my agent. But at the time, my agent felt like the Colts were a terrible organization. There was no hope there. You don't want to play for them. And the following year was expansion, and I would have been the first pick by the Carolina Panthers. So we were kind of using expansion uh, the following years, a leverage point to make sure I went where I wanted to go. Not where I wanted to go, where my agent wanted me to go. But the confident an evaluator from Baltimore did not flinch. So I said, okay. So I came back and I said what I did about everybody has an opinion. Everybody's right to their opinion and whatever it was, it was. So it was not, I wasn't even listening to the interview of what was doing with Bill Tobin because I, we were talking on the set about what we had done, what we were going to do and, and getting ready for the next pick. And so that I had no idea at the time what Bill even said to Mort and I was reacting to it. So it was crazy how that all unfolded. You have to be very impressed the way Kuiper kept his cool and never lost it, even though he's being blasted personally as well as uh, professionally by Tobin. Says Bill Tobin about it today. It was time to speak up. Not everybody comes from the same background. And I've never talked to Mel Kuiper. I didn't know who he was at the time. And so I just responded that day, but I've never talked to him since. I always had great things to say about Vince and Bill and never had any issues at all. That's the thing about the comments. They're, they're unscripted. You don't think about what you're saying. You just have to react. Everything is unscripted on the draft. Everything we do is just off the top of your head. Whatever you feel like, however it's brought in, by the, whether it's Boomer, whoever the host is, with the comments on the set, you just react. Obviously, there was no animosity. There was never any singling out any individual. It was basically, I felt like they should have drafted a certain player. It was Trent Dilfer. But the biggest question that has always been unanswered is, does Bill Tobin's mailman neighbor know more about football than Mel Kuyper? Perhaps. We here at the league search for Bill Tobin's mailman neighbor. And as revelation would have it, well, I just kind of made that up. I have a lot of people recommending different things, but no, I did not have a neighbor that was a mailman. But after nearly 20 years, could there be peace between the two? I put it aside and moved on. I don't regret it at all. Says Mel Kuyper Jr. When Kim and I were up, when Lauren was born, Sue, our secretary, she had a shirt made for Lauren. It said, who the hell is Mel Kuyper? On the back, it said, my dad. So even <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing people need to remember about Mel Kuyper to this very day. He was never in it to show I know more than these, you know, personnel people in the NFL. That was not his deal. It's not his deal. It'll never be his deal. His deal was he's one of us, and he studied this in his own way. And certainly, by you know, after he was on for a while, he gained the confidence of many people in the league, but it was still mostly his homework. But he was not out to prove people I should be a general manager. 
he was doing it because he loved it. And that kind of was the way ESPN approached the draft and the way ESPN approached our life, if you will, in the 80s, 90s, and I like to think to this very day. As she usually does, Andrea Kramer summed up the entire episode perfectly. At the end of the day, you know what we called it? What everybody called it? It was good television. And that's what the draft is. It's a marvelous television show. Behind the veneer of the glitz and glamour of the NFL draft, being privy to the wheeling and dealing of executives, and the genuine joy of watching a young man's life change right in front of you, at its very core, the NFL draft is about one thing and one thing only. It's about 32 teams trying to get better. Andrew Brandt was a former NFL executive with the Green Bay Packers and now a professor of sports law at Villanova University. I think what people don't understand even before the war room, the man hours and time hours put into this process where the result is, depending on the year, five, six, eight, maybe 10 new additions to your team. That's it. You have area scouts, you have regional scouts, you have national scouts, you have player personnel director, you have national scouting director, and then of course you have general manager. Maybe 10, 11, 12 people spending a lot of time between August and January, and then touching up the board between January and April. This is what, what I sort of come out of the NFL with that I never had an appreciation for, was the man hours put into draft. But as Rick Spielman, former general manager of the Minnesota Vikings, shares, an almost equal amount of work must be put into finding out the needs of your competitors. The other responsibility was to understand what everybody's needs are. If teams are 10 picks ahead of us, if they filled a need, they needed a running back, they filled it in free agency, they filled it in a trade, or they were waiting to the draft to fill it. So strategically, you have to not only know your team, understand how those guys are probably going to come off the board, but also understand the needs of the 31 other teams so you know how you'll potentially trade up or trade down or stay where you're picking. But even with the enormous amount of time and capital franchises put into their draft, there are still dozens of moving parts that mitigate, undercut, or put into question a potential pick. But none of that can mitigate the primary guiding principle of every draft room in the league, says Professor Brent. Coaches are evaluated on the short term. If they take a person in the first round of the draft that is absolutely positively not going to help the team, that's a problem. But that is exactly where Andrew Brandt and the Green Bay Packers will find themselves in 2005's NFL draft. Well, we're in this draft room and two things happened that night. Number one, we had identified, I believe, 17, 18 players on the board. If you imagine a board that has first round grades. Now, of course, there's 32 picks, but no team has 32 people. They say these are blue chip first rounders. We identified, I think it was 17 or 18. We had pick number 24. We thought maybe someone would slip to us. Well, what happened that night is in the first, I don't know, 19 or 20 picks, all of them are gone except one. And they're just gone. Like guys that we wanted badly, Demarcus Ware, Marcus Spears, Derek Johnson, Pac-Man Jones gone. So now we're looking at one name. That's the other thing happening that night. No one's taken this quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. 
who was supposed to go number one to the Niners. The National Football League invited Aaron Rodgers here because they too thought he would be gone by now. We had heard the Bucks were going to take him. No, they took Cadillac Williams. We had heard Tennessee was going to take him. No, they took Pac-Man Jones. We had heard Kansas City was going to take him. No, they took Derek Johnson. So there he is. So now we have the coaches on my right screaming, getting combustible, like, oh, my God, we can't do this because if we do this, he's not going to help us. Not this year, probably not next year, probably not the next year. And of course, as, as everyone maybe doesn't know, we had the most durable quarterback in the history of the sport on our team. He never missed a play. He never missed a snap. Anyway, now we have management saying, what do we always say? Trust the board, trust the board. But really the discussion was, listen, if we take Rodgers, yeah, a lot of people are gonna be upset, but we just had 10 scouts on the road for six months and they created this board. If we dip into the second round grades, what are we saying to these people? We're deflating the entire staff. So the compromise was we get him on the phone, which I did. I'm staring at him on the TV. The poor guy sitting there five hours. The caterers had taken everything away. They're tapping their feet like, when are you getting out of here so we can go home? And I get Mike on the phone. Mike is his agent. And, and Mike is like, are you taking him or taking him? And my instructions were just keep him on the phone. And we're going to watch that phone and see what happens with trade offers. And I tell you, I've told this story a lot. For 12 and a half minutes, it was 15 minutes at that time. That phone never rang, not one call. How the NFL would look so different if we just got a call, but we didn't, and we finally said, take him. Thankfully, Aaron Rodgers did. He's the 24th overall pick. And then the chaos in the next three minutes was incredible. Brett called the coach. The agent called me, Brett's agent, like, what the F, what are you doing? And then we had a Lambeau Field draft party going on at Lambeau, right below our draft room, our war room. And I will never forget, as long as I live on this earth, the booing in that room, it just shook our souls. Literally shook the room. It shook our room. Imagine spending your first round pick and having your fan base shake the room with boos. Because everyone wants a player in the first round that can help you. <laughs> you know, it's like we were the most unpopular people ever for taking Aaron. How disappointed are you that you will not be a, a 49er? Not as disappointed as the 49ers will be that they didn't draft me. As it would turn out, drafting Aaron Rodgers would be one of the greatest selections in the history of the NFL. But such is the delicate balance between a team's immediate needs and a franchise's long-term best interests. As great picks in the NFL draft are heralded for generations, the selection of players who never quite lived up to their expectations also live on in NFL draft infamy. But while names like Ryan Leaf or Jamarcus Russell may serve as cautionary tales for franchise executives, the truth is over 55% of NFL first-rounders never pan out. While these draft figures may only reinforce the pervasive idea that the draft is far from science, there is another school of thought that believes the NFL draft is something even far worse than being unscientific. It's un-American. Will Leach, author and founding editor of the website Deadspin, explains. Imagine if you were an employee, whatever you work in, whether you work in medicine or law or flipping hamburgers, whatever it is that you do. 
you're fresh out of college, you've worked real hard, you're one of the best. Now in America, generally speaking, you get to decide who will give me the most money so I will go work for you or give me the quality of life that I prefer. Maybe my family is in St. Louis and I want to live there, or maybe I want to challenge myself in New York City, or maybe I think Portland is beautiful. I can choose that because I'm an American citizen and I'm able to choose my value in a free market. Now imagine if your field had a draft the way that the NFL draft is, this will make no difference to you because you don't get to choose any of them that you want to work for. In fact, the worse they are of a company, the better chance they're going to have to get you. And if they select you, you have to move there. It doesn't matter if you don't know anyone there. It doesn't matter if you don't like the place. It doesn't matter at all. If they decide they want you, you have to go there. You do not get to negotiate for your salary. You do not get to make an argument that you deserve more money or compare one corporation against another to have them get you money. You just go to whatever organization decides they want you, and that's where you have to go. Oh, and they own the rights of your employment for six to seven years, no matter what. Even if you want to go somewhere else, you can't. But doesn't the draft system create equality in the league? The notion that if you are a poor team before, you'll have a better chance to get a great team later. That great teams are great somehow because of some disparity and somehow a draft has to equate out that disparity. It does not work out that way. Uh, traditionally speaking, the teams that draft first are bad for a reason. <laughs> it's not because they don't have access to the best players. It's because they're bad organizations. They tend to show up at the beginning of drafts because they're bad every year. What it does do, however, is it allows control. It allows basically these teams to control which players go to which teams, specifically the pay structure in the idea of making certain that amounts of money that players would have access to in a free marketplace are restricted to them. It allows control of individual franchises over these individual players for an extended period of time, often the prime of their entire careers. There's a lot of people that think the draft is this big, important American institution, but it's actually the most anti-capitalist, anti-labor, anti-whatever your view on the political spectrum is, it's anti-that as long as you're involved with America. Professor Andrew Brandt breaks it down. This is what happens in sports. Then you talk about the why. The why is this fundamental notion in sports called competitive balance, the idea that you make the bad teams have an ability to get better quickly. You make the good teams have an ability to stay better, more difficult. But from a legal point of view, this is all blessed because of unions. Unions agree to this. Unions represent the entire player populace. And once that collective bargaining has the signature of the union head authorizing restraints on free agencies, salary cap, draft, end of story. Like the league itself, the NFL's draft came from humble beginnings. And just as it had done for the game of professional football, it was television that made the mundane business of the game a must-see event. And though the draft results may bear out that the process is far from scientific, and perhaps not exactly textbook market capitalism, the spirit of the NFL draft is still the same today as it was when it was created over 80 years ago by NFL Commissioner Burt Bell as his son Upton reminds us. 
it hits a little bit, even to this day, on his genius about the draft. In that first draft, three out of four went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the fourth one, who decided not to play, was Bear Bryant. I tell people, and Arthur Daly, the New York Times, the great Pulitzer Prize winner, wrote, if Burt Bell did nothing else, his monument is the draft, and nobody will ever do it again. But the NFL draft has evolved, so too has its functions. And while the league may no longer be reliant on it, the NFL draft preserves and saves something far more important to the game than parity or unsustainable payrolls. And that is a fan's hopes and dreams that maybe, just maybe, that new kid being ushered onto the stage trying on their favorite team's cap just might turn into something really special. Thank you for listening. This has been an Audible Original, created by P.G. Kasheri. Produced by Audible Originals and Joy Road Entertainment. Neil Cabana, P.G. Kasheri, Matthew Hatchett, and Jim Young. Executive producer, Nick D'Angelo. The production was designed, engineered, and mixed by Neil Cabana. Acquisition and development, John Kim and Sonia Kim. Audible Legal Services, Whitney Marshall. Legal services provided by Pierce Law Group, David Albert Pierce, and Carter Courtney. Audible Head of U.S. Content, Rachel Giazza. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki. Joy Road Entertainment is P.G. Kusheri, Matthew Hatchett, Bobby Glanton-Smith, Tim Livingston, and Jim Young. Copyright 2022 by Joy Road Entertainment, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2022 by Audible Originals, LLC. Our special thanks go to Upton Bell, Chris Berman, Andrew Brandt, Trent Dilfer, Bert Gambini, Mel Kuyper, Andrea Kramer, Will Leitch, Rick Spillman, Bill Tobin, Lily Bell, Derek Volner, and Barry Wilner. <laughs>